Coming up this hour, things that Christians need to stop doing on social media. Tim Keller's been tweeting, and then we're joined by Stina Kilsmeyer-Cook to talk about her new book, Blessed Are the Nuns. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Uh, a couple of things that you should know before we dive into the show. We have a Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's a great place to not only interact with the articles that we post, you can also shoot us a message if you have ideas about future shows or you want to yell at us. That's been happening a little bit. Um, <laughs> yes, <it has>. <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is, you know, to be expected, right? We've certainly said some controversial stuff i guess every now and again but uh we do really welcome that even if you're mad at us you can send us a message you can also find us on instagram and twitter at common good talk or wherever it is you get podcasts i know we say it all the time but if you wouldn't mind subscribing rating and reviewing that helps us out a whole ton and uh we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that brian before we get uh started here with a tweet really a twitter thread from tim keller a buddy of mine yesterday was like what is happening to tim keller he's been kind of on a roll uh some of what he's been posting is like sillier than i've typically seen from him but it's a it's a pretty fascinating thread but i i know that it's friday and it's probably good etiquette to just ask you how are you doing today I am. Uh, yeah, I'm doing well. Although I was telling you off air, we got some housework done between uh, we got a new roof and siding this week. So it's been crazy at my house and my Internet got knocked out. And uh, so I am like a like a, uh, a post college just out of college. I'm doing a radio show from my parents basement next door right now. So uh, it's the, uh, the most millennial thing I've ever done. So that's what the we're doing. Most. Today. You know, millennials are like 40 now, right? Like I that's, do. I do, but it still makes for a good joke. <laughs> I, I yeah. think that's a very extra thing to like keep referring to millennials like they're 19. They're like, <laughs> I do. It, it totally is. I've never sounded older, but no, I'm doing well, man. I'm glad that it's Friday and looking forward to a really good weekend. How are you today? I am great on this National Tradesman Day. Super. Okay. super it's also National Day in Chile. It's just called National Day. <laughs> didn't know that was a thing it's the air force birthday as well so oh happy birthday props <laughs> you saying that to me i didn't serve in the air force um <laughs> okay so here's the thread i'm gonna let you read it actually i know that you're a big tim keller fan i am and uh he, he makes some interesting claims here on twitter we're actually going to begin both hours of the show with a tweet which is not anything that i think i've ever done but uh i'd, I'd love for you just to read this thread and then we'll, we'll talk about it yeah, it's really good. I have noticed what you have noticed that Tim Keller has been a lot more active on Twitter mm-hmm. and a lot more silly as well. On his Twitter profile, the first line might give us a little hint of that. He said, my son posts here on my on my behalf as well. But I'm still going to picture that it's Tim Keller doing the silly stuff. Sure, so. sure, sure, sure. Here we go. Tim Keller. Christians and the freedom of conscience in politics. The Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, and then parenthetically, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded. And therefore, we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me Uh, How many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year? It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. 
This means when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for blank, or every Christian must vote for blank, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. That is Tim Keller. And then there's he answers and gets into it with a lot of people in the thread. Uh, but I find this to be really helpful. It's You know, you and I often joke about people that, who say things that we're thinking, but they say them so much uh, more succinctly and smart mm-hmm. and in smart ways. Because I've tried to have this conversation with people, especially in light of John MacArthur, Robert Jeffers, and others saying, you know, uh, you've sold your soul to the devil if you vote Democrat. No real believer, John MacArthur said, could ever vote for a debt for Joe Biden. Those types of things. And and what Keller's getting at here really gets to what I've been feeling like, you know what, it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. And you just can't say that, that all Christians should do X. Yeah, and I think part of what's interesting is by most metrics, Keller is politically conservative, theologically conservative on on most issues that I've seen him tackle. He, he actually responds here. Uh, he continues the thread and says, some folks are missing the point of this thread. Yeah. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. That's the one. If you're looking, by the way, at the thread and which ones mm-hmm. are getting the most responses, uh, it's the very first one and then that very last one. And I, I'd be curious to know, Brian, why you think that last one has garnered such response. Like this is, I mean, Keller's got quite a platform anyway. Uh, plus it's Twitter, so we know that there's obviously pitfalls with the platform at the very least. That's probably putting it lightly. Um, why do you think that last sort of addendum, that add-on, like, hey, you, some of the guys are missing this. Like, I know that this is a problem, but as Christians, it's actually understandable that we would disagree on the best way forward to to end them or to diminish them. Why, right. why do you think that one was so why, – why do people respond to that so intensely? I think a couple of reasons, and, and it's a good point. I think, one, a lot of us, let's just be honest, have been – uh, for many years, a lot of Christians have been one issue voters when it comes to abortion, right? We look at who's for it, who's against it, and it's very black and white for us. And, and, and so I think that becomes the really hot button one. Well, Keller, are you saying that if somebody says I'm voting for someone who's pro choice, that, that, that there could be justification for that? Uh, he brings up that the abortion conversation is a little more nuanced, right? That, uh, of what causes it to decrease. You might think there are specific policies that will cause it to decrease. Uh, so I think that's one. And two, just to be honest, I think the abortion one has been a, a way for people to go, so therefore you should only vote Republican. Right. Uh, and so I think bringing that up allows people to go, no, I disagree. I think all Christians should vote Republican. But I think a- abortion is clearly, and the, the, uh, the again, what you brought up earlier is the irony is that there aren't going to be uh, more anti-abortion, pro-life people writing and and speaking than Tim Keller. Like that's what he believes. He's written extensively on it, but he's saying this is still a more complicated issue when it comes to how do Christians vote. Hmm. I I, uh, I like that he links here to this article he wrote a couple of years ago for uh, what's it New York Times, mm-hmm. and the headline simply reads: How do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you read that. I'm just, I want to read the last, last paragraph of this article. Again, this was two years ago. He said, the gospel gives us the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs and us personally. Christians should think of how God rescued them. He did it not by taking power, but by coming to earth, losing glory and power, mm-hmm. serving and dying on a cross. How did Jesus save? Not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. Like if that in any way kind of whets your appetite to the full article, uh, we'll post this on the Facebook page too. I think it's a really, really important work. And again, I know that like, you know, he's, he's written a lot lately on like critical race theory and then, yeah. you know, came under fire from other people. David Fitch did, I think, a good job of sort of offering some of his pushback. There's a Christianity Today article up on our Facebook page. But at the very least, it feels like Keller is doing a lot of the same kind of work online right now that I see Scott Saul's doing to help us think more deeply. We've even read articles from like Ron Sider or David French right. on this topic mm-hmm. of abortion specifically. I would highly encourage you to go find those because they're really helpful. Either way, I've appreciated Keller's thoughtfulness because, you know, if you were sort of just doom scrolling Twitter, there's not, there's not a lot of thoughtfulness uh, mm-hmm. these days. It seems maybe your, your thread's different than mine or your stream, but uh, I'm, I, I'm always, I'm always at the very least interested in his perspective, even though I, uh, I don't always agree. Speaking of online interaction, by the way, coming up next from Relevant Magazine, Christians, let's all stop doing these 15 things on social media. That's a list because today is Brian's birthday. Coming up next here on The Common Good <laughs> on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins and Brian Fromm. It is actually not your birthday today. I I do need to offer a correction. Forgive me, please. I was I was more saying it because you love lists and we're going to we're going to talk about a list now. I don't know how this works, though. I know that you love lists, but does it being a long list make you like it more or or less? Probably more. It's more <laughs> anticipation. <laughs> all right. Well, with that in mind, I do kind of want to get to all 15, which is a little ambitious for a short segment. But uh, out of Relevant Magazine says, Christians, let's all stop doing these 15 things on social media. As always, this is posted to our Facebook page, the common good radio show. So if you want to read it or reread it, I think there's some, it's a really, it's a pretty sound article. There's some sound advice in here. It's written by Tim Arndt uh, just a couple of days ago, Brian, why don't you get us into it? Yeah. And I just think this is so important because like he says here uh, on online, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, many times it seems like Christ is completely absent from our minds. And so this becomes an important conversation for us as Christians. So number one, Uh, He puts them under headings. This is under the heading of attitude. Number one, uh, don't be so negative. Here's a fact. There is far more bad news than good news on social media. Christians can easily tap into that and lament the growing immorality and loss of truth around us. But we have to be careful not to be in a constant state of negativity. Hmm. When Christians are more well known for what they are against than what they are for, we all lose. On your social media accounts, be sure to share truth, beauty, and and goodness. It then uh, shares Philippians chapter four, verse eight, and then finishes rejoice in goodness, share beauty, show love. Number one, don't be so negative. And that truth, goodness, beauty, actually, we were talking about that with Mark Galley earlier in the week. Those are the the transcendentals. If you want to learn more about Mm. uh, truth, goodness, beauty. Number two, don't get caught in every outrage wave. Every day, the world is up in arms about something. We debate new laws, point fingers in the aftermath of tragedy and feel the need to defeat or defend or attack every presidential tweet. I know so many college and seminary educated Christians whose Twitter feeds amount to nothing more than their commentary on current hot topics. Certainly some battles are worth fighting, which is what I was going to say to the one you had, Brian. But in reality, most people don't care about any of these controversies after a few months have passed. Christians would be better off representing their savior with dignity and charity than having a meltdown over whatever the headlines were that day. That's a good word. 
And next one under the category of distractions, number three, don't be too partisan. Oh, politics are important. But the They're left. Not, <laughs> but they are not the most important. <laughs> politics can become a serious distraction from the gospel and the Great Commission. Over the years, uh, this author says, I've spoken to many unbelievers who equated Christian beliefs with their parents' political belief, uh, political views. Their family was more outspoken about their political beliefs than their religious beliefs. And it's no wonder the kids picked up that the politics mattered more than the truth of God's word. What a shame. Let me ask you a question, he writes. If someone were to scan through your social media accounts, what would they think mattered more to you, your faith or your political party? Hmm. There's a balance to be held for sure. But I think it's safe to say that too many Christians seem to give too much weight to politics. Yeah, number four, this is one that's going to make me sound old, but I totally agree. Don't use crude memes. There's no doubt about it. Memes are huge in our culture, but a lot of memes feature double entendres, risque pictures, and generally crude joking. Just like you shouldn't say dirty jokes, don't make dirty memes. Don't like them. Don't share them. That's good. Next one under uh, number five under image says this. Don't self-elevate. Glorifying self is the oldest sin in the book. Adam and Eve fell to the serpent's lies, desiring to elevate themselves to, quote, be like God. And the same serpent is quietly hissing in our ears today. Avoid the temptation to use social media as an avenue uh, to make yourself look great. The following rules cover specific ways that we self-elevate. Yeah, number six, we were just talking about this in a teaching team meeting. Don't humble brag. We all know it sounds tacky to brag, right? So what do we do? We humble brag. Here are some examples. We cover up bragging with self-deprecation. So sore from working out of the gym for two hours. <laughs> That's a good one. We use others to make ourselves look good. I was so encouraged eating dinner with Chris Tomlin last night. <laughs> we just straight up use the word humble. I'm so humbled that my latest YouTube video went viral. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, humble brags uh, serve to say, hey, look at me. I'm amazing and humble. Instead of humble bragging, just celebrate. I got my dream job. Thankful for my new car. That's that's a good word. Yep. I'm going to go take down my social media post going, how nice does my new siding look on my house? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. too, too bad it's already on a radio show. <laughs> I can humble brag here, right? <laughs> Number seven, don't quote spiritual brag. Oh. It says, I'm a young person in ministry, and I know a lot of other young people in ministry. One thing most of us have in common is that we don't have a lot of money. I commonly see young Christians share things online like our budget's been tight lately, but we're so thankful to have a loving family and a roof over our heads. Well, that's a good sentiment. Why are we really posting those thoughts for all of social media to see? We might as well translate that post to say, look how spiritual we are because we're thankful, even though we aren't rich. (laughs) When you do good things, don't seek affirmation from Facebook friends. The affirmation from your heavenly father is all that you need. This is another one that we literally were just talking about in a teaching meeting yesterday. Don't brag about your social media fast. Honestly, I get, so sick of, I get sick of seeing people post about their social media fast. There seems to be this obligation for Christians to announce. Uh, I've been spending too much time on social media lately, and I'm going to take some time off to spend more time so with God. True. If you need to contact me, you can contact me by email or text. First of all, no one is really that concerned. Others might need to contact them. But more importantly, <laughs> Jesus specifically said not to announce your fasting. That's actually the text that we're writing about uh, is that specific verse. And that's what really? everyone, everyone, we ran there for probably 15 minutes on like, we don't need to know. Just fast from it. Go ahead. That is so true. Now that here's what's happening in this list. Now that they, you bring them up, I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's so true. But I don't really know it. <laughs> Like that one that you just read deep down always bothers me. Okay. Number nine, don't act like you have it all together. Yeah, that's a good one. He says, when my wife and I were dating, we'd often talk via Skype or FaceTime. Back then I was in a total and complete slob, but I didn't want her to see my messiness. Uh, So he goes on to say, 
What we share can be all a sham. Have courage to be real. Share the photos of crying kids. Laugh at your own cooking fail. While you might not look perfect, you will be honest. And as an ambassador for truth, being trustworthy is more valuable than being attractive. That's a good word, man. I'm just going to quickly read the next five, if that's okay. Okay. And then we'll react with whatever time we have left. Just because I think they're good and they're worth sort of saying out loud. Number 10, don't blindly trust all, quote, Christian sources. Oh, boy. (laughs) Now I want to read that one. Uh, Don't blindly share Christian quotes. Again, the word Christian is uh, is in quotes there. Uh, number did I missed 12. There it is. Don't give into Christian peer pressure. Oh boy. I want to go back and read that one. 13. <laughs> uh, don't be mean. It's insane mm-hmm. that that even needs yeah. to be said. Like the amount of justification I've seen now I'm like all fired up. Wait till the next one. <laughs> oh boy. Really? Okay. Number 14. Yeah. Don't attack people. Yeah. That kind of goes with the mean thing, but yeah, the amount of times I've seen people justify it because of their truthfulness or because of the rightness of their doctrine, just being mean to people. The number 15, don't be too proud to apologize. That's a good one to end on. I'd love to know, do you want to unpack just one of those with the minute and a half we have left? Yeah. The one that people might be confused by, right, is don't buy, what was it up there about Christian? Don't trust, blindly trust all quote Christian sources. Yeah. Yeah. It says first is from false teacher. You see this, right? Without reading it, you see that so often uh, you'll, I'll have people on my, from my church or that I trust who will just blindly share something under the guise of look what this pastor said, or look right. at this and just take it as gospel. And you just read it and you're like, no, that is, that is not true. That's not wrong. And so just because it has pastor on it, or it comes from what appears to be a Christian site or it, you know, cl- you know, has some nice Bible picture with it or whatever, be more <laughs> discerning. Uh, do some work. And and it, the next one goes with that, too, about Christian quotes, for sure. Yeah, I, I will say this, too. This will sound self-deprecating. I guess it's supposed to be. Brian and I are both pastors, and we've said stuff that's straight up wrong. Like the idea, 100%. I always feel a little bit of that uh, renewal of responsibility if I like post something online and someone shares it and goes, this was said by a pastor friend of mine. And you're like, oh, boy, they're <laughs> leveraging my role to... To make the case that this statement is all the more true, which, you know, is probably why, like James talks about, hey, be mindful. If you're if you're a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher higher account, which I think is that's always challenging. Anyway, that this whole article is on the Facebook page. Which ones would you add or take away? What do you think of this list? Uh, All of that is really, really welcome over on the Facebook page. And coming up next, we have a very special guest, Stina Kilsmeyer Cook, just wrote a book called Blessed Are the Nuns. And we're going to talk to her about it next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to have on the Zencaster, I don't want to say on the phone because that's not accurate, but uh, <laughs> in spirit with us here in the studio, we have Stina Kilsmeyer-Cook, uh, her new book, Blessed Are the Nuns. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. It's our pleasure. Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself before we dive in and talk about the book? Sure. So, hi, everyone. My name is Stina. I'm a writer from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And yeah, I'm navigating this pandemic, working from home, married with two kids, and just trying to hang in there. Yeah, I hear that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Stina, this book, uh, you and I were just talking off air, it is it is really personal and really, uh, I'm going to tell you, I've been thumbing through, it's really fantastic. And I, I'm wondering if you could just give our, our listeners kind of the background, because it's a really personal book right, that you've written here. Yes. Yeah. So the background is that... Um, So my husband and I met at Wheaton College, which is an evangelical school in the Chicago area. 
and our faith life was a huge part of our connection to one another. And then several years after our wedding, he went through a spiritual shift and came to a place where he said he could no longer believe in God and participate in Christian life. And so that set me on my own spiritual journey of trying to figure out what it is that I believed and how to hold on to my faith um, in a marriage where suddenly we were believing different things and were in an interfaith relationship, which wasn't something that I had ever anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the background is that when that happened, I went looking as someone who loves reading. I went looking to books to see, mm-hmm. could I find someone who had had a similar experience, who didn't view their marriage as something that was tragic or, um, you know, somehow in this very negative kind of light, but as something that God used in some kind of beautiful, redemptive way. Hmm. And not not to negate the struggle or the challenge of being in an interfaith relationship, something that was really honest, but ultimately didn't um, paint this picture that was just overtly negative or, you know, this, this will never work, or this is something that needs to be changed or overcome in a specific kind of way. And so when I came up empty-handed looking for good stories, I did what any writer does. I just started writing for myself and mm. um, writing through my own experiences, writing through my own faith challenges of, of trying to figure out what I believed and, and what this all meant for me and for my family. Um, and then gradually over time, um, through my writing group and different communities that I'm part of, shared bits and pieces of that with my husband's permission, of course. Um, I didn't want to write anything that he would feel uncomfortable with right, readers right. Um, seeing or reading. And in and through that, realized, oh, there are a lot of other people who are navigating mm-hmm. faith shifts in marriage and who... Even if you are in a marriage where you both believe the same things or are part of the same church community, you know, there are always seasons where we're in different places spiritually in any kind of union. So realizing that this was a really common experience and if I could offer up my story, um, that might be a book that someone in 10 years could pick up who is navigating a similar dynamic. So that's really where um, the, the book came from. Well, and, and I would echo what Brian said, too. I've been looking through it and it's it's fantastic. And obviously we want people to go buy the book. But could you just maybe briefly speak to someone who's maybe listening right now who finds himself in a similar situation? Like what word of hope or encouragement or challenge would you say? What did you say to that person now that you've sort of processed through some of this in your writing? Yeah, um, well, I think that the major trajectory that the story takes is going from a place of real fear of real uncertainty of real, um, yeah, just, I guess, lack for a better word, fear of being scared of what, mm. what does this mean? Is this going to work? And realizing that God was big enough to, to handle those feelings and that uncertainty and realize that, um, I could still trust God with my husband, with my marriage, with my community. And I don't make any promises in the book that, your loved one will, you know, become a Christian again, that mm-hmm. your vows will even hold. Cause I know a lot of couples whose marriages don't um, withstand a change like this, right. but I think I just wanted to, I want people to know who are in the situation is, you know, it doesn't have to be something that ruins your marriage or life that, that you can actually, um, God can be, can provide you with a lens of love to look at your loved one, whether it's a spouse or child or friend 
and mm. that that that's big enough. Um, that can be big enough for you and for that relationship to withstand and to actually have some a really beautiful a beautiful relationship. It's mm-hmm. it, your love becomes um, based in more than just a religious condition and realizing mm-hmm. that it can be bigger. It can be bigger mm-hmm. than that. And much of your story uh, ends up focusing on an interaction you have or time spent with a community of nuns in your neighborhood. Yes. And I just found that really fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit, how did that come and, and what difference did that community of nuns make in your life? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so as someone who was formed in evangelical institutions and churches, I really felt like the nuclear family was where most of programming and emphasis was placed. Um, and so when I started going to church by myself with my two little kids, I felt very much on the outside or on the sidelines of community life, not from any like intentionality from anyone in my church communities, because I don't think that was the case, but it just you just realized you were different, that you were, you were showing up in a different way. And so when I found a group of Catholic sisters in my neighborhood, I realized these are all women who are single, who were mm. living out their faith in community in a way that just provided a very different model than the tradition that I had been raised in. And so I initially was really attracted to them and to their spirituality because I thought, huh, I wonder if they have something here to teach me about spiritual singleness, about living your faith um, you know, more on your own. And spoiler alert, it turns out they hated that term, spiritual singleness. They don't, <laughs> they don't relate to it at all because their, their faith is so much bound up in their community, in their community, in the communal acts of worship, of praying together five times a day in the liturgy of the hours practice. And so mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, my attraction to them was finding a place initially where I didn't feel like an outlier, where being someone who was practicing their faith on their own was celebrated and yet also came to realize that everyone needs community. We all need uh, the body of Christ in order to live out our faith. Um, yeah. I think that's, I think that's a phenomenal perspective. I, I got married a little later in life and I remember prior to becoming married, I was getting invited to speak a lot, but almost always on singleness. And I was like, <laughs> I think I'm becoming like the single guy, like the single <laughs> pastor and preacher. But I realized though, that there, there wasn't a lot written that even helped me develop like a theology of singleness, which it sounds right. like what you're saying is you, this book isn't just for people in mixed faith marriages. It's also people who maybe you know, needing a unique perspective on their singleness. And I'd love for you to just take a minute or two and, and like speak to that. Like you mentioned how these nuns don't think about it in the same terms that maybe we would, you know, naturally categorize them as like, how, how, how can people maybe think more robustly about their own singleness? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I am married. And so I think, right. you know, I, I realized that um, there are things that, even if you are married to someone who has a different faith than you, you can find underlying values that you still share, <clears throat> still pieces of your common life together that reflect your values and spirituality, even if it's not necessarily within what, the same tradition. But in terms of people who are single in the church, I guess I just have such much greater empathy for what that experience mm-hmm. is like and realizing as someone who is married and yet coming to church on her own, that we need to do a much better job of honoring that, you know, all people coming to our faith communities have a place, you know, and all of us. Um, and you can be in a, in a married relationship and be lonely. You can be single and be lonely. Um, or you can do the work of developing, you know, relationships that help support your faith no matter what stage of life you're in. So I guess I don't have a, a robust theology around that, but 
um, I just more of an empathy of, you know, it can be hard out there. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think that's a great response. Real quickly, where can people go to learn more about you or the book, website, social media, any of that? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you can find me at stinakc.com. And right there, there's a books tab where you can find all the places to buy the book. It's available in audiobook as well as paperback and digital. And in social media, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram um, at stina.kc. That's wonderful. Again, the book is called Blessed Are the Nuns, Stina Kilsmeyer Cook. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. It's our pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. Happy Friday. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is also here. And PJ, our producer, is lurking quietly in the shadows as he produces the show right now on the radio for you. I, I found this article, Wall Street Journal, and I just just the headline and the subheading kind of intrigued me. It's a long, long article, and we won't have time to like barely do more than like scratch the surface. But uh, it says, Land of the Free and Fettered Speech. And it goes on to say, in a time of rapid social and technological change, Americans are struggling to figure out the new rules of political discussion online and in person. That is the truth, isn't it, Brian? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And so Adam Kirsch, the author, begins by talking about uh, uh, all the stuff that's going on around George Floyd and then freedom of the press and Donald Trump talking about fake news. And so it jumps in by going. So why do many Americans feel that it's getting harder to speak freely? According to a poll released in July by the Cato Institute, 62% of Americans agreed with the following statement. The political climate these days prevents me from saying things I believe because others might find them offensive. Hmm. That included 77% of self-identified conservative, but also 52% of liberals. The same month, a group of prominent writers, including Margaret Atwood, J.K. Rowling, and Salman Rushdie, issued a letter. You and I read this letter in Harper's Magazine warning that the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. These fears have nothing to do with the kind of threat to free speech envisioned by the First Amendment, which talks about Congress making no laws and aims to protect speech against government control. Traditionally, America's free speech heroes have been radicals and dissenters who stood up to state power. Hmm. Uh, But it says today, Americans are less worried about government censorship than about navigating the unwritten rules of socially acceptable speech. Violating those rules doesn't bring jail time, but the prospect of losing your reputation or your job has a chilling effect all on its own. And at a time of great social and technological change, staying on the right side of the line of permissible speech can be difficult. Let's stop there. Uh, that line right there, Americans are less worried about government censorship than about navigating the unwritten rules of socially acceptable speech. I think that is so true right now. I think this guy is really getting at it that right now, uh, online, but also in person, it's really hard to know even what you're uh, allowed to say, what is permissible, as they say. And I think this is increasing in our society. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One, I I didn't actually think of this until I heard you read it when it said today Americans are less worried about governmental censorship than about navigating the unwritten rules of socially acceptable speech. We a couple of weeks ago were talking about how in the West we've long been a a more guilt innocence culture. (laughs) And I think that's been shifting towards, you know, what what um, is called an honor shame culture which traditionally has been much, much more prevalent in the East. And that statement right there kind of highlights that it's less about 
I'm worried that local governance is going to slap some kind of indictment on me, some kind of infraction. But I am actually really worried about the shame that could come from these like social contexts where if I say the wrong thing. Now, I will also add a caveat, though, because I have I have heard people say typically not online. This is more like in the safety of you know some kind of gathering. Somebody say, oh, man, you can't. I can't I can't say anything about a woman's body when she walks by anymore. And you're like, yeah, because that's a horrific thing to do to another person. Like yeah. sometimes, you know, in the name of like, oh, it's it's getting too, too stiff out there, too difficult to, you know, speak your mind. Like, yeah, but, you know, thinking of a particular person saying this, like, yeah, but you speaking your mind, though, has historically been pretty degrading and pretty sexist. And pretty, you know what I mean? So it's. There is some of that. I don't know if you're interacting with people who are making statements like that. We're like, oh, gosh, can't say anything these days. Like there there certainly can be some benefit to saying like, well, yeah, that most people agreed what you're saying was pretty awful. But, you know, maybe nobody nobody had the courage to stand up to you. I do think that there is there are some things that are being tempered in a in a good way. But I, I I've interacted with a lot of people as of late who have felt this sort of like social angst about like, oh, gosh, I don't want to upset people, I guess I should just keep my mouth quiet. Yeah. And also, I think what <clears throat> also plays in here is uh, that increasingly our culture labels, it, you know, you say something and you take on this label, whether it be online or whatever else, uh, there's very little nuance, for instance, right? Can I, um, uh, can I question whether or not uh, Joe Biden would be a good president without being seen as just a, a crazy Trump supporter, right? By other people. Or can I question, um, uh, can I support the police or can I, can I make questions about protests and other things and not be labeled a racist? And I, when I hear people talking about that, that's their worry. It's like, I, if I say something that might be kind of gray in the middle, I'm going to get these labels. And so I'm just going to kind of stay quiet because I don't want to be seen as far right, far left, racist, pro-police, whatever else it might be. I do think, and maybe it's always been this way, but I think with social media, especially, it becomes so easy, not just to cancel people, but to label people. And I don't think any of us like that. And, and you end up taking on those labels where, you know, you might say something and be like, no, I'm not that. I just want to have a conversation about this. Like, I want to, I want to engage in a conversation about this, but we quickly just put labels on people or denounce people. And then those are hard to get out from under. Yeah, I, I like with this paragraph. Again, we're barely even getting a chance to scratch the surface yeah. here, but a couple of paragraphs down it says it might seem paradoxical that Americans are feeling uneasy about free speech at a time when it has never been more abundant. It used to be that a person's words reached no farther than the sound of their voice unless they had the credentials and connections to write for a publication or the money to start one. But thanks to the Internet, anyone with a compelling message can change the terms of political debate with a Twitter account, a podcast or a YouTube channel. More than 20% of American adults use Twitter, some 40 million people. On YouTube, NBC News has 3.8 million subscribers. Steven Crowder, a 33-year-old conservative commentator, has 4.7 million. That, to me, is like pretty central to the debate, which I think is, I think is super interesting. Again, I know that we're barely touching it, but I, I would love to know what people think about maybe the current state. And then maybe a follow-up question would be the trajectory. Are we heading in a, in a good direction here? Or are we heading in a direction that worries you? And maybe more pointedly, like, what is the response to the Christ follower? We were talking a little bit earlier in the show about some some challenges, some suggestions for yeah. how Christ followers yeah. should be interacting online in particular. But maybe those apply to all of life in general, to be honest. And I think when it's when it's an issue of free speech, I know that it gets people really, really amped up. And uh, 
it's not like you were going to say something there, Brian. I, I'll get, yeah, 10 seconds. Yeah, I don't think – I think what becomes interesting or important when we say free speech, it doesn't mean free of consequences, right? But yeah, you're right, instead right. able to say – and I think as the Christ follower, like you said, and what we talked about earlier, we need to become people who can disagree without being disagreeable and labeling people and still show grace and love to people who we even disagree with. Yeah, that's a good word, man. Coming up next, did Cornell West convert Tucker Carlson to democratic socialism? You'll find out coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, Cornell West, Tucker Carlson. We're going to talk church attendance, racism, and we're going to end with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Welcome back to the show. Or if you're just joining us via radio, welcome to the show. I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast while you're there. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, that does help us out a whole ton. And we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. You can find us on Facebook as well, the Common Good Radio Show. Before we dive into this audio, Brian, which is a couple of years old, and I did not prepare you for this, uh, what news do you think is worthwhile talking about right now? What's what's happened in the world in the last day or two that I did not include in the rundown that you you think is noteworthy? Oh, gosh, that is a that is a big one. I think that uh, the wildfires, I don't know, see all of these. I don't know the angle, but what's the biggest news right now? I think it's those wildfires out in California on the West Coast. Like when you probably when you start to try to even get your mind around how huge these fires are, it's unbelievable. Like it's so tragic and unbelievable. Uh, You know, there's always some covid stories. There's always covid and uh, uh, the, the return of football, the return of football. Actually, you know, we never talked about is the Big Ten playing football now, kind of changing course. Uh-huh. And uh, there's some interesting dynamics at play as to how that happened. I bet you that would be interesting. I I, I knew you were going to slip some uh, some sports always in there. Yes. And I realized I didn't have any in today's show, and I wanted to give you a chance to uh, illuminate <laughs> for us. <laughs> what, did, what did Ian miss digging up a tweet that's two years old, which hey. is not really, you know, like breaking news by any means, but – it certainly has been flying around the internet yeah. uh, the last day or two. And once you hear it, I think it might be obvious as to why. So let's take a listen and then we'll react. Fundamental commitment is to the dignity of ordinary people and to make sure they can live lives of decency. So it's not an ism, no, brother. It's about decency. It's about fairness. It's about the accountability of the powerful vis-a-vis those who have less power. The workplace, women dealing with the household, gays, lesbians, trans, black people, indigenous peoples, immigrants. How do we ensure that they are treated decently and that the powerful don't in any way manipulate, subjugate and exploit them? Well, I mean, if that's what democratic socialism is, then I'm basically on board. I do think that ordinary people, middle class people ought to have dignity. And I think that our current systems make it hard for them to have dignity. So I I agree with all of that. All right, Brian. So first blush, what what sort of your your take use the word angle earlier? What's sort of your angle with uh, this short clip? Uh, the Cornell West is brilliant, for one thing. Uh, <laughs> Cornell West, and if you ever watch any cable news, especially, he's on a lot of shows, and he's just brilliant. He really is. He's passionate, and uh, I always find him to be really thoughtful. I, I do find it interesting the context that this is like two years old, but still a conversation going on right now, uh, and that Tucker Carlson, uh, he's 
even feels like I don't watch him very often, but he's changed in even two years time. He's a little more uh, far right right now. And I would guess that that's playing to the audience. Um, but yeah, I think really interesting that, that Cornell West basically described a, uh, in, in human terms, kind of a belief system that most people wouldn't attribute to Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson said, hey, if that's what it is, I can believe that. I could go for that. And that's kind of an aha moment. Uh, so I found that really interesting. And like you said, even though it's from 2018, the reason it's flying around the Internet right now is because it plays still uh, so contemporary. Uh, it, it plays really well in today's context for who Tucker Carlson is and what's going on in our country. Oh, see, and I don't know that, that was the angle I was going to take. Let me hear your uh, angle. That's an interesting, interesting perspective. For me, what I find fascinating about this short discussion, and again, I, I haven't seen the, the full interview, so may, maybe that would you know illuminate some things for me, but uh, the possibility of what can happen when we actually listen to each there other. Like there's a, there's a certain sense, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, about how you know social media tends to work. It's not a lot of listening. It's typically a lot of outrage, a lot of all caps, back and forth, mic drop, hot take, that kind of, you know, uh, it's easy to dismantle what someone else is saying or posting. And a lot of it needs to be dismantled. I'm not saying don't do that. What I find interesting, though, is when people are actually able to listen to one another. Mm -hmm. And like this is an example of of Tucker listening to, and again, they, they seem to already like sort of respect each other. So that's another important component. That could be a whole other jumping off point, but the willingness to say, cause I've certainly had people who have told me things as a pastor, like here's, here's why I could never be a Christian. Cause I don't believe blah, 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 blah. And more often than not, I'll say, yeah, I don't believe that either. And they're like, wait a minute, you cannot believe that and be a Christian. I'm like, e yeah. And like, okay. Well that, opens a couple of doors of opportunity. I'm not saying they like ask to get baptized right then and there, but there is often, I think a greater receptivity from people about who they would maybe at first blush deem as completely opposite of them or an ideology. They could like never see themselves even entertaining the thought of when you have like an honest, open, respectable conversation, sometimes like, oh, wait a minute, your side believes this. I believe that. Or your side values this. I also value that. Like you can almost hear the surprise in Tucker's voice. Like, well, wait a minute. Is that what democratic socialism is? Because if it is, I, I'm on board. Obviously, you know, there are other things that right, I think right. would prevent him from fully jumping into that camp. But I don't know. I, I just found it to be an interesting, tiny microcosm of like, oh, there, there's some real beautiful possibilities when we can actually take the time to listen to each other and be maybe less concerned about here's, I'm going to dunk over them mm -hmm. in front of everybody. So, so that they know that I'm right and they're wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And, and that it's surprising to see people, especially in a cable news format, listen <laughs> and I'll go, Oh, I do believe that. And I, I one thing that right. also stood out for me here is right. The labels of democratic socialism or uh, conservative, whatever, like we, we like, we talked about in an earlier segment, we label everything. And the way that Cornell West put it out there was saying, hey, uh, this is for the decency and the integrity or whatever words he used of all people like that, whether you're rich or poor, whatever, that, that you want other people to uh, to have a decent, a decent lifestyle or whatever he was saying. Exactly. Um, it, it is. I, I hope that's true for all of us. Like, I hope regardless of your politics, I hope your politics and this gets back to what Keller said earlier. 
I, uh, in segment one, uh, at the very beginning of the show that we talked about, I hope that your politics are driven, not just by what can make you more money or what can lower your taxes or whatever else, but that your personal politics are driven by what's going to raise up the people who might be on the margins right now, who might be struggling. Yeah. What's going to make sure that all of us together in the United States of America uh, and then even around the world are doing okay. And then you can argue with which policies bring that forth. But especially for the Christ follower, I do think at our core, we have to say, you know what? I, I do want the flourishing of all people, not just me or, or the people around me. Of course, I want to have flourishing, but it's not, I'm not so self-centered that it's just about me making more money or me having more freedom or whatever else, but going, you know what? I want the flourishing and the decent life for all people. And now let's argue and debate about what can get us there. But let's start from the same point, I think would be really helpful for all of us. Yeah, that's a good word, man. Also, if uh, you're not familiar with Cornell West and you're wanting to take a, a deeper dive, maybe into him and his theology, his politics, he did a really great interview. It looks like it was back in July on a podcast called Future Perfect. And uh, it was a great conversation. The headline is why Cornell West is hopeful, but not optimistic. Uh -huh. It's a it's a great listen. It's worth it's worth the hour investment, because I think um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if if everyone is like a, a podcast person. But it, for me, it's like helpful to like take at least a a mildly deeper dive into the ethos of a person before, you know, come to some conclusion about who they are as a person and how they value things and blah, 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 blah. All that to say, I think you're spot on, Brian. I think that's a good call. Uh, coming up next, it turns out that there's some uh, some interesting research from Barna that's come out about evangelicals' interest or disinterest in racial justice. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. So what is going on here with this uh, religion news story. Yeah, it says the headline says this. This is interesting because you're, they're starting to get data about things we talked about a month ago, two months ago, three months ago. It says no race problem here. Despite summer of protests, many practicing Christians remain ambivalent. So this is at Religion News uh, by Adele Banks. She wrote this as racial tensions have risen in recent months. A new report reveals that some Christians are becoming less motivated to act on racial justice and an increasing share say there, there is, quote, definitely not a race problem in the country. Christians mm. generally and practicing Christians in particular have changed their minds on addressing racial injustice. But if anything, they're actually moving away from being motivated, said Dave Kinnaman, president of Barna Group. It's not a majority of Christians, but it is a segment of Christians who say they're unmotivated or not at all motivated to address racial, racial injustice. He said, adding that the group has essentially doubled in the last year. So here's some numbers. 30% of practicing Christians, that is people who identify themselves as Christians, have attended worship in the past month and claim to strongly prioritize their faith. 30% uh, of them say they are not motivated to engage in matters of racial uh, injustice. So 12% said they're unmotivated. 18% said not at all motivated. That's an increase uh, from 2019 when 17% said they were not motivated. That was one of the most surprising findings of the summer study by the Kinnaman, uh, by Barna. Is he said, I think there was a lot of anticipation that the last three, four months might change Christian's perspective on some of these things. But when you look at white practicing Christians, the same pattern holds true, he said. The motivation to address racial injustice has declined. And then he goes into 
some other statistics that maybe we'll get into if we have time about black uh, self-identified Christians and others. But uh, Ian, I uh, I was surprised when I read these, so I'm con- I'm I'm wonder if you were surprised, but more so, what do you think's behind these numbers? Yeah, I was a little surprised too, and I'm a little embarrassed that I'm surprised. If I could just say that, even though it's it's not about me, I I had posted something a couple of days ago, maybe more than that. One of the things I said was, I think how did I word it? I, th- I said something like waning interest in justice is a key characteristic of privilege. Like the idea that, well, I'm, I was interested in this back when George Floyd first happened, but I've moved on to other things or I was really excited way back then. And again, I I get this stuff has to ebb and flow. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't be at a high octane, you know, all knobs go to 11 kind of all the time. I get that. Uh, But part of what concerns me here is that, even even with the kind of outcry that we're seeing now, and I know that not, not everyone listening right now might even agree on the types of outcry or to what extent or the narrative or the spin. I know we're all suspicious of you know the, the opposing side and the opposing media and, and all of that. At the very least, though, because that's not even really what the question was, when, when it comes to uh, the issue of addressing racial injustice, not do you think police should be defunded or can a Christian support the organization black lives matter? Like it didn't even get into those specifics, just the question, uh, how motivated are you to address racial injustice? That to me is, is both surprising and discouraging that there would be a rising percentage of, of white evangelicals who are just completely unmotivated. It, it is different than disinterested, I guess, but not that much different. Like, I don't know that I would even feel better if the word was, are you interested or disinterested versus motivated or unmotivated? Because at the end of the day, if you're interested, but not motivated, you know, what, what real difference does that make? So at the, at the very least, we've talked a lot about this on the show, you know, Brian and I are like two white men. So all cards on the table, you know, we've, we've been trying to do a better job of really like listening and assuming a posture of a learner, which, you know, we, we did, months ago, but maybe you need to do more of, but yeah, these statistics, this, these findings I, I do find, I find troubling. Yeah. And I, I, when I first read this, I really tried to give thought to what's behind it. Like you, you've done here, like what's behind it. And I, and I do wonder, yeah, I'm just shooting off the top of my head here. So again, that can get us in trouble sometimes, but I just wonder if this is also just a representation of the politicized nature of our culture, of the way everything has become politicized. So if to even speak of being interested in uh, quote unquote racial justice, that's what some people, you know, are like, well, you know, that's just the left doing this. And and instead of being like, you know what, as Christians, we want to fight all issues that, that would not uh, value people equally. And we want to get at the issue. I feel like um, many of us were, uh, were, were, when all of this started back in March with George Floyd, was that March or May? I forget, but we were, uh, there was a, this is a, this is a problem that, that we have to attack. And since then it's become a political issue, much like COVID too, that you've got to take a side on. And I, I think that's, what's disturbing here because somehow now being on the side of wanting to create a, a, uh, some, uh, healing along racial injustice and racial racial strife through through our culture has become 
like a sign of what political side you're on. And once that happens, then these the statistics don't don't start to surprise me. And and so I think the question becomes, how do we get it depoliticized? And that's probably not possible. But the church has to kind of rise above that. We say this with so many issues. The church has to rise above that and go, what would Jesus do in this scenario uh, and in this context, as opposed to what would a Democrat do? What would a Republican do? But I'm just not sure we're very good at doing that in this culture right now. Yeah, another thing the the study found said that uh, 72% of black adults and 75% of black self-identified Christians said the U.S. definitely has a problem with racism in 2019. Numbers that jumped up to 76% and 81% respectively in 2020. 2020. Uh, in other words, black Christians are becoming more convinced of the problem while white Christians are becoming less convinced. That, to me, is part of what makes the trend concerning, not just simply at a theological level that white Christians seem disinterested or unmotivated in general, but that black brothers and sisters are seeing, noticing, feeling, experiencing something that is increasing their, their conviction in that regard. And that white Christians are trending the other direction. That to me, anytime you see those types of, and there's probably some people that would say, well, yeah, those, those, the trends in those trajectories make sense for X, Y, and Z. I totally get it. Uh, I still do find it troubling. And and that's to me something that I, I, I do really I appreciate the show and the platform, but also most days feel completely unqualified or under equipped to like speak to us, well, especially, you know, given given our position, given our, our place and culture and society. So at the very least, I wanted to offer yeah. the data, the findings. But I am also interested in like the question that you raised, Brian. Are you surprised by this? Yeah, what's behind it? Are you concerned about it? What's maybe some other ways to look at it and and maybe underlying like what's the what's the deeper truth behind that and what are maybe some responses that Christ followers need right. to take? And I, I would love for all of that to happen over on the Facebook page. Coming up next from Carrie Newhoff, uh, church attendance is dying. What's next? That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope Everyone, happy Friday. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We do say our first and last names every time. Do we have to keep doing that? Probably not. Uh, yeah, probably not. I, I just have realized I so much get into even more of a rut than you do. So I not only say our first and last names, but the same way every time. But if you'd like to just go Ian and Brian, Brian and Ian, I'm good with that. You, let me let me give it another go. See how it feels. Ready? Right, three, two, one. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian, along with Brian. That feels weird. It feels weird. <laughs> yeah, totally does. Feels feels like you lost a limb, like a, like a like a radio limb. I played bass in radio limb. Anyway, <laughs> we've detracted for too long. Kerry Newhoff, who I think we've referenced more this week than we have in, in the past, mm-hmm. but I think he's he's a pastor and an author. He's also like a leadership coach. He's got a podcast. He does it all. It's nuts. I don't agree with uh, everything he says, but I don't agree with everything that I say. So he's <laughs> he's been doing a lot lately about uh, kind of assessing the current state of the church, but also maybe more importantly, the future trajectory of the church. And we know that there's been some back and forth online with other people kind of disagreeing with some of his claims or his his assessments, which that's what makes Internet fun. Right. But he uh, this is not brand brand new. I mean, so a week ago he said church attendance is dying. What's next? Again, Brian and I are both pastors, yep. and we know that uh, there's a good number of people listening who are Christians who, you know, attended a church before COVID. Maybe you are attending somewhere even now, 
uh, and we're all kind of trying to navigate what is next. And we know that this is a, a very real thing. So uh, I'd love for you to get us into this. And then Brian and I will offer some of our thoughts. Yeah, he says this. This is Kerry Newhoff again. He says, as you know, long before COVID, it was already difficult to get people to attend weekend church services, travel sports, weekends away. The death of cultural Christianity and a growing indifference and increased mobility meant that for most churches, attendance was flat or declining. And for growing churches, growing attendance was, well, work. Post-COVID, as churches around the world reopen, it's now like church attendance is further falling off a cliff. After mm-hmm. reopening, most churches are reporting 10 to 40% of their prior church attendance figures. I don't understand that. Do you, is he saying 10 to 40% have left or like that's what's remaining? I don't know that. Um, he says, as far as online attendance goes, despite an initial surge, post-Easter 2020, only 18% of pastors now report that their online attendance is higher than a typical in-person week. This means for 82% of pastors, even online church attendance is flat or declining, which is surprisingly like pre-COVID numbers where only a minority of churches were growing, uh, which raises at least two critical questions. First, what on earth is happening? And second, what's next? That's what this post is about. So we'll pause there with his two questions. Uh, I'm not surprised by those numbers. Do you find any surprise in those numbers at all? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little surprised mainly because, you know, what we register as attendance right now yeah. is the easiest it's ever been, right? Um, where before you had to actually, you know, bathe your children and put them in decent looking clothes and load them into the minivan and actually drive to a physical building where now you could, you know, you could all be in your PJs eating waffles and just turn on your smart TV. Um, I do also, it is also interesting to me that there doesn't seem to be a gatekeeper determining what qualifies as attendance. Right. Like I was talking with our guru, Brandon Bernicke over at community who leads all of our uh, video online efforts. And he's like, yeah, the average viewer right now is 38 minutes, 38 minutes of a 45 minute service. And I thought real, that's good. That's way longer than I would have anticipated, you know, cause a lot of, the way a lot of views work on Facebook, I think it registers at a view if it's more than three seconds that's or right. something like that's that. Right. So if you see if you have a billion three second views on a service. Can you really, can you really count that as attendance? But he said, no, at least on our platform, communityonline.tv, the average attendance is 38 out of 45 minutes. And I thought, okay, so that actually was very encouraging to me. 38 minutes is a a pretty good chunk. It's also strange though. Like if it was a 45 minute in-person service, we would, we just walk up and leave seven minutes before the end or, (laughs) I guess people people do. There's yeah, a there's late. a high number of people that come ten minutes late. Right. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm a little surprised, but not not entirely surprised. Yeah, and so this gets at a lot of what you and I have talked about the last couple of weeks of just the discouragement, the confusion. I think that a lot of pastors are feeling. Uh, so Newhoff later on goes on to say this. He says, "But know this: the path to the good news is blazed by leaders who keep moving through all the bad news." Uh, with that in mind, as hard as they may be to suggest, he's going to go for a list. I appreciate it. Here are mm-hmm. seven things I believe will help you and your team prepare for a stronger future. So if everything he has said is true and there's all this uncertainty and all of this, I don't even know what, what attendance really is right now. He says here in his mind are seven things that are going to help you prepare for a stronger future. So let me just let me just read them because yep. I know that like a lot of people listening, you know, you're not a pastor or you don't work at a local church. So, you know, this might not be engaging for everybody, but I thought the suggestions were interesting and could apply to other places. It says one diagnosing the situation accurately. It's not medical, it's cultural. 
Uh, let me scroll here. Number two, embracing digital church as your new default. I'd love to know what you think of that one, Brian, because I know some people are like, no, I'm not embracing that as a default. Like very actively, people are saying, no, thank you. Number three, not letting vanity metrics or the lack thereof distract you. I don't know what you qualify as vanity metrics, but I think that's that's one that's going to be hard to unpack. Number four, prioritizing engagement over attendance. That's a huge one. Mm-hmm. I, I think the way that I put it, I said uh, entertainment versus engagement. You know, like a lot of how, how we sort of uh, measure what how effective, I guess, what we're doing actually is. Number five, building online churches front door and side door. Uh, the front door. Inside, I don't, I don't actually know what that analogy is. Number six, embracing the home and community, not the church buildings as the new hubs of ministry. That's something that we're trying to do at community. And then number seven, uh, restaffing for the future. So any, any in that seven you want to, you want to take a dive into? Yeah. What was that one further up there that you, you mentioned? Uh, what was number two? Let me go. Embracing digital church as your new default. Uh, I still like to think of it as a temporary default. <laughs> and I, I, I am first to say that I don't know when that default is going to shift back to being in person, but I, I just so much love and long for uh, being together that I guess I'm trying to be more hopeful that it's not the new default. Now, with that said, even smaller churches like my own that had no digital church presence before have to embrace the fact that it's here and, and enjoy the fact that it's here to stay for some segment. Will it be the primary way going forward, that remains to be seen. But we need to know that it is a way going forward. I, I hope it's not the primary way, though, going forward. I don't think I realized that you, you guys didn't have any digital presence. You guys were recording. Were you just doing audio? Yeah, just audio. So it would be podcast. So what, what has that been like to try to – like you had to pretty – you had to learn on the fly for sure. Uh, the beauty and of it is a lot of smarter people than me within our church who, but yeah, we had to go out and buy equipment uh, as we're running. We had to do this. So we're fully up. It's working great. Uh, but if there weren't some very technologically savvy people within the church, and it's funny, man, because we, with these exact people, we've been talking for years about what would it, what would it look like to put it on video? This, that, and it, there, other things always come in the way. Well, COVID hmm. kind of put poured gasoline on that discussion. And so, no, now it's going great. Uh, but yeah, no, it was a real learning on the fly for sure. Let me, I know we're out of time, but I want to ask you something real quick. Go for it. Uh, let's say by miracle of miracles, COVID just like disappears and <laughs> no one has any social fear at all. Right. And you were, you were right back next weekend. You're right back to where four corners was a year ago. Do you continue to sort of put energy and effort into digital now that you've done it? Yes, for sure. Because I, there's certainly even people, uh, within our community who, uh, for sickness reasons or other reasons, weren't able to make it. But I totally see where there's people watching from who used to go to the church, who live far away or who have no connection to the church. This, for even a church like our size, this will be a part of our culture going forward. Uh, but mm. man, I do wish it would just kind of go like, I, not that I, I do wish COVID would just go away. I like, I like your dream there. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, we'd love to know what you guys think. We know that this is a discussion that a lot of people are having with regards to their churches or what church they attend or maybe even disagreements you're having about the decisions your church's leadership are making about open or not open or what that looks like. All of that is fair game over on the Facebook page coming up next to land today's plane. Finally, some good news that's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Hi friends. Welcome back to the common good for the last time today. Sad face emoji, but 
fret not. We are back all next week from four to six p.m. We got some great guests lined up. You're gonna you're gonna love it. I'm just gonna say it. I'm gonna say it right now. If you missed any of today's show, by the way, uh, highly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast while you're there. Subscribe, rate, and review all of that. It does. Re- it's like giving us a digital hug. It helps us out somehow. <laughs> makes the show a little more visible. And uh, we know that plenty of you have already done that. We're super grateful for you. Also, a very special thanks to Stina Kilmeyer's Cook and her new book, Blessed Are the Nuns. Really wonderful interview that happened earlier in the show. Highly encourage you to go back and listen to that. And a segment that we like to at least try to end the week with every once in a while, yeah. because we know that there's a there's a lot of just bad news in the media right now. Right or left, regardless if you're political or theological convictions, it can be easy to get a little down in the dumps just by opening Facebook. So we try to end just with some good news, some good stories that we found. And all of them today are from the Good News Network. Goodnewsnetwork.org is a website I would encourage you to bookmark because they're wonderful. I have a whole bunch, though. So seven stories. We're going to get to all of them. Brian Fromm, take it away. All right. This veteran is helping fellow vets Transition to civilian life through video gaming. One medically retired veteran of the U.S. Army is helping recreate the brother and sisterhood people often find in the service through his YouTube channel that focuses on gaming and self-care. After Christopher Bohm left the Army, he learned from a friend the staggering statistics that 22 veterans die each day by suicide. Being injured and having a past struggle with alcohol abuse, he connected with the pain of these veterans. He decided then that he wanted to help others leaving the service smoothly transition to civilian life. When he learned that the U.S. Army uses Twitch, a live streaming platform for gamers, for recruitment purposes, he knew he could do something similar to connect with veterans and prevent the social isolation and depression that exists in the veteran community. Christopher set up his own YouTube channel, Bayonet X-Ray, where he plays video games live for 22 minutes at sunrise each morning representing the 22 veterans that die by suicide. Uh, While gaming, he shares strategies for combating PTSD and depression, daily motivation, and tips for healthy eating and breathing. He also provides general camaraderie for isolated veterans. What a cool story. That's a that's a quintessential example of the type of like ministry of service I would never think about. But exactly. I'm so glad I'm so glad that somebody did. Exactly. I saw this one. This is uh you know, we we're often talking about how how depressing Twitter can be. Here's a here's a happy Twitter story. Her dad's food truck made just six dollars in a day, so she asked Twitter for help and hundreds came to the rescue. When a young Texas woman realized how much her dad's food truck has been struggling in the pandemic, she made a single post on Twitter asking for help. Giselle Avilas and her father Elias have a close relationship, so she's often been inquiring about his health and business. It's been hard for Taqueria El Torito, he admitted. Daily earnings for the humble Texas food truck have been as low as $60, $40, even $20 for a full day's work. When Elias mentioned uh, to his daughter that revenue one Saturday was just $6 after putting in a 12-hour shift, wow. she was stunned. She told CNN, I just said, well, we have nothing to lose, and I decided to make the tweet that day. The 21-year-old wrote on social media, I wouldn't normally do this, but my dad's taco truck is, uh, business has been struggling. He only sold $6 today. If you could retreat, I would appreciate you all so much. Her plea to the world worked. By Sunday night, her post had been retweeted over 2,000 uh-huh. times. Giselle told her dad he should probably get ready for some new customers. By 8 a.m. the next day, he had a line of customers waiting for his fresh torta, tortas, tortas cubanas. And some had been waiting there since six in the morning. It was such a busy period that Elias even had to close the truck for a short while in order to restock. Luckily, 
restock, restock. I can talk. <laughs> Luckily, Giselle was able to help out with orders that day. I love stories like this. Really props cool. to the family and props to Twitter for showing up. For Twitter world, yes. Uh, next one, World War II veteran to get Final Wish themed casket to match his passion for handing out juicy fruit gum. <laughs> when 94-year-old Suddy Economy is packed out, uh, is packed off for the sweet hereafter. <laughs> That's a weird way to put it. <laughs> right. His exit strategy is going to be a little sweeter than most. That's because Economy plans to be buried in a casket decked out like a pack of juicy fruit gum. <laughs> the Roanoke, Virginia Navy veteran's love affair with the juicy fruit goes back to his days in the service when, as part of the Second World War effort, chewing gum manufacturer Wrigley suspended stateside distribution and sent bulk of its product to troops overseas. Since then, Economy has become something of a self-appointed goodwill ambassador for the brand. Sammy Oki, the president of Oki's Funeral Service, an economy of a friendship that goes back 45 years, said he would come in here for a visitation and just come in and visit. And he would always bring backs of juicy of juicy fruit and put it out for other employees. Economy's gum gifting ways weren't just confined to funeral home visits. He did it everywhere, restaurants, doctor's offices, wherever he went. And now he's going to be buried whenever he dies. Uh, in a uh, juicy fruit themed casket. That's awesome. I love juicy fruit too, by the way. Of course you do. I, do. I was, I was going to ask. Of course you do. All right. So we got four, four more stories in three minutes. Can we do it? I'll uh, keep this one brief because I think probably a lot of people have seen it already. Uh, Dave Grohl wrote a theme song for the 10 year old girl. He's been engaging in drum battles. Did you, have you seen any of these? I've heard about it. I haven't seen them. No. Okay. So Dave Grohl, uh, famously the drummer from Nirvana and the front man, the founder of uh, Foo Fighters says over the past few weeks, Foo Fighters front man, Dave Grohl has been in an ongoing drum battle with a 10 year old girl. Now he's really gone and raised the bar, penning one awesome song for England's Nandy Bushel. The big drumming challenge began when Nandy challenged Grohl to drum to his own hit song, Everlong. Grohl then responded with Dead End Friends by Them Crooked Vultures, and they've had this whole back and forth, and he just wrote this theme song for her where like he got his whole family in on it and like mm-hmm. actually like wrote and re- recorded an entire song, and it's phenomenal. You, you got to go and find it. That's awesome. The next one, two-thirds of Americans believe they've become a better person this year. Uh, two-thirds of Americans said quarantine has made them a better person. The poll of 2,000 Americans over the age of 21 looked at the positive changes, positives, changes to come from this challenging time and the ways in which respondents are reprioritizing what they value. So for sake of time, it's just this poll has said uh, more and more people have said they've become better people this year, which I guess is a silver lining to all the craziness we've gone through. Do you think you become a better person, Brian? Depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally get it. I was encouraged by that, though, because I know that it's, again, this is kind of the point of the segment, but I thought, man, that many people feel like, no, I've made some appropriate shifts in my schedule or my planning or whatever, and uh, I've worked hard at some, you know, some self-improvement, which I think is awesome. This one's out of Kenosha, so uh, just a little north of us here. Kenosha, Wisconsin farmer plants 2 million sunflowers to make people smile. One Wisconsin man has been very busy during the pandemic. He's planted 2 million sunflowers to give joy to others. Guests at the Thompson Strawberry Farm pay $25 per car and are invited to cut invited to cut and take a dozen of the bright flowers home once they're done wandering through the fields, taking pictures and having a good time in the late summer sun. Scott Thompson is a fourth generation berry farmer based in Bristol, Kenosha County. Speaking with Pat, she said this year, 
Uh, people have been coming from Milwaukee, from Chicago, and everywhere in between. A lot of people are saying we just need to get out of the city and come out to a place where I could take my mask off for a couple of hours. My hat is off to you, Sir Thompson. That is a brilliant, brilliant idea. I think my wife went up there with my kids to take pictures of them. My wife's a photographer, and I think she went up there and no said kidding. it was unbelievable. That's awesome. All right, last one. Boy donates 22,000 diapers to single moms, u- moms using funds from his lemonade stand. Awesome. Lots of kids set up lemonade stands in the summer. For 11-year-old Cartier Carey, it was a chance to do a lot more and give back. Uh, that's because he isn't using his profits to open his first savings account or saving up to buy something for himself. Instead, he's investing back into his Hampton, Virginia community. His goal helping single mothers in need. With all the stress and financial uncertainty brought on by the pandemic, Carrie decided to focus on the basics, diapers and wipes, and he was able to donate 22,000 diapers. Man, what an awesome kid. That's a great story. Listen, if that's not motivating, I don't know what is. The kid was 11. 11 years old, they'll pull that off. Uh, Again, it's a little hokey. It's a little cheesy, but we all have a part to play. We can all make a difference in giving back to our communities, our neighborhoods, making them better places to live and be. And especially for Christ followers, I think that uh, Jesus himself really, really strongly suggested that Mm. that be something that's a part of our life. Hopefully, you found those stories as encouraging as we have. And uh, we hope that you'll join us again next week from 4 to 6 p.m. every weekday. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. (laughs) 